Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Xenos was originally set up as a leaderless group that rejected the structures and trappings of mainstream churches. Springing forth from the Jesus movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s, it focused on meeting in people's homes and embracing members from the youth countercultures. So why does the church's own website admit to a history that involves cult-like behaviour? And how did it come to face allegations of manipulation and control that have been made by people who joined and left in completely different decades? Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of physical and sexual assault and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Dennis McCallum was born on the 14th of April, 1952, the second eldest of three sons to Martha Hoyt and John McCallum. Bruce was the eldest, then Dennis, Scott and Keith. I couldn't find out much about Dennis's childhood in Columbus, Ohio, but he writes that he was brought up initially in a Christian Reformed church, then a conservative Methodist church that became liberal, though he mainly rejected Christianity in his youth. An Amazon biography says that Dennis married his wife Holly in 1973 and graduated with a BA in history from Ohio State University in 1974. 
The couple had three children together, Jessica, Joe and Brett. But a few years before his marriage, in 1969, the then 17-year-old Dennis found himself in jail after a couple of years of drug use and dealing. He was arrested under charges of possession for sale related to 12 marijuana plants and was looking at a 5-10 to year minimum sentence, so he says. But with the support of a religious man in the probation system, he says he miraculously managed to avoid any prison time. Instead, he was released under certain conditions, including adhering to a 9pm curfew and attending college while maintaining passing grades. He was to live at home under his parents' watchful eyes, and they could let the authorities know at any time if he broke the conditions. Initially, he gave the impression of being a fully reformed young man, but he admits that he was still using drugs for some time. On Dennis's arrest, his friend Gary Delashmet returned home to be met by his mother waving a copy of the Columbus Dispatch. Its headline was, Two Worthington Youths Nabbed in Pot Garden, with a subheading, More Arrests to Follow. She told him that she didn't want to hear of him fraternising with Dennis anymore. He still snuck around to do so, though Dennis's flirtations with Bible studies led by former Campus Crusade for Christ members Gordon Walker and Ray Nethery didn't particularly interest him at first. Dennis enjoyed the groups, but felt that there was a better way to connect God with the counterculture movement at the time. Dennis's older brother Bruce had come across a Christian paper associated with an organisation called Young Life that he did some work with in Pittsburgh, and returned to Columbus with the idea of starting a similar publication there. With a contact of their mother lending them a printing press, Bruce and Dennis started publishing The Fish Quarterly in 1970. Bruce told Rita Shade for student newspaper The Lantern in 1971, We print about 5,000 papers and most are circulated on campus, High Street and throughout the city. The journalist reported that the paper was full of words like bummer, downer and hassle, slang terms that Dennis told her were keeping it on the level of its young readership. This was the time of the Jesus movement, which birthed a number of religious groups appealing to youth, including the children of God. Slogans at the time included, yes to Jesus, no to the church. Campus Crusade for Christ held Explo 72 in 1972 to capitalise on this movement, with Billy Graham featuring at the week-long event in Dallas alongside the likes of Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson. The media dubbed it Christian Woodstock, and it was attended by some 80,000 young people. The early 70s were also an era of mass protests across various university campuses, including Ohio State University. There were about a wide range of issues, including the Vietnam War, rising tuition, and demands for a black studies unit. The State Highway Patrol was called in to put down a protest on the 29th of April 1970, when the university's then less militarised police force was overwhelmed, and clubs and tear gas were used against students. Cartoonist Durf Backdurf wrote about the events 45 years later, and points out that OSU was massive, with a main campus at the time a mile from top to bottom and 50,000 students. That day's riots ended after the mayor issued a 9pm curfew and the governor called in the National Guard at 11.30pm. In the midst of this charged atmosphere, alongside publishing the underground newspaper, the McCallum brothers hosted Bible study groups, and the share house they moved into became known as Fish House after the Fish Paper. The lease of Fish House was taken out by a former PBS anchorman for the local station in Wichita, named Bob Carroll. 
Benjamin Williamson interviewed Bruce and Dennis McCallum for his 2021 PhD thesis, and they shared with the academic how Bob Carroll met the brothers on a trip to see their grandparents in Wichita. Bob was very taken with some of Bruce's poetry, and somewhat surprisingly gave up his job and sold his house to move to Columbus and help with the fledgling ministry. The older man living with the group of younger students is a kind of house father. With the Bible study gatherings taking place over the next few years, the group became known as the Fish House Fellowship. Bruce McCallum told The Lantern it was for people who have a spontaneous Christianity and need a place to rap, a place to pray or simply express themselves outside of an organised religion. A rejection of establishment churches can be seen from their early days, with Bruce saying that there was no organisational structure. Dinner, cooked by Bob Carroll, and Bible study was on Thursday nights, and Sundays were for worship. Gary DeLashment came from a less religious background and moved into the residence in 1971. Over time, he learned more about the Bible, got into the idea of this kind of religious teaching, and began to lead groups with Dennis. Bob Carroll departed from the group soon after confessing that he had romantic feelings towards Bruce in 1972. According to Benjamin Williamson's dissertation, Bruce maintained a high level of respect for Bob, though he couldn't return his feelings, and remained appreciative of his generosity, while Dennis framed Bob as having had ulterior motives. Over the two years he'd been at Fish House, Bob spent all the proceeds of his Wichita house sale. Bruce told Benjamin Williamson, he was a wonderful human being who really sacrificed a lot to get the Fish House going, and suffered. He lost more than he gained by trying to do that. After Bob left, they moved to a bigger house, and this was the first house they would refer to as a ministry house, a term you'll hear more about later. They stopped printing the fish paper in December 1972. Benjamin Williamson wrote that Bruce McCallum left after 1973, as he felt that, quote, Dennis's influence over the others and leadership was taking them in a sectarian direction, because, Bruce said, it, quote, was centred around Dennis and Gary's personalities. Bruce told the academic that their younger brother Keith called Dennis the Pope when he was a staff member, and Williamson noted that, In both my interviews with Dennis, Bruce's name hardly came up. I only learned of his integral role through reading Martha's memoirs. Dennis and Gary came to embrace the idea of something they termed an every-member ministry. From their current website, quote, Members were urged to find ways to serve in accordance with their gifting. The group increasingly came to view being a do-nothing as a serious failing. Reverend Raphael D. Martinez, the director of Spirit Watch Ministries, writes that their new wineskins included, quote, new kinds of far more informal and close-knit fellowship built on close, daily, interpersonal discipling relationships that went way beyond just simple weekly church attendance. Fish-associated Bible studies groups spread out and formed satellites to the Fish House core and the movement saw growth throughout the early 1970s. In 1974, the loose association with the older campus crusaders Gordon Walker and Ray Nethery ceased as the pairs diverted in different theological directions. That year Gary and Dennis went to Los Angeles for two years of study at Christian Associates Seminary, mostly taught by different former campus crusade staffers. When they returned in 1976, the Columbus following had dwindled to about 60. The setup they honed in on during their further studies included a board of five to six elders, 
and once these were elected, they started inviting more people to small home Bible studies groups. They would then periodically bring the smaller groups together for a larger teaching, which might be attended by other interested people as well. The method worked, and by the turn of the decade, membership had grown to over 500, according to the organisation's current website. Gary and Dennis were working as painters when in 1981 they incorporated the various groups into a formal church and became the first paid staff of Xenos Christian Fellowship. The organization's website references Hebrews 11:13 and says, quote, "The name is derived from the Greek word Xenos, which in the New Testament denotes sojourners in a foreign land, a biblical description of Christians whose ultimate home is in heaven." During the early 80s, Xenos underwent a period of rapid growth. The home churches were tasked with a mission of outreach and multiplication, with the aim of dividing into two new home churches when numbers increased appropriately. New leaders were trained through courses with small fees in a process Xenos referred to as equipping. Still today, quote, students have to pass a minimum of six 10-week courses in order to qualify as a home church leader. Dennis McCallum says that they are second to none of any church in equipping. So they feel that they are better than any church in terms of evangelism and equipping people to evangelize and lead. And there's a high pressure to get on a leadership track. They say you don't need to be gifted in leadership. You just need to follow their, their training and be willing to lead. So there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. That's the voice of Jessica McNulty, who shared her experiences of Xenos with me for this episode. They originally leased space in a warehouse to accommodate the larger group gatherings known as CTs or Central Teachings. Unlike most other religious gatherings, these included a smoking area, and the rough and ready nature of what many referred to simply as the warehouse continued to appeal to those looking for an alternative to the stuffy churches of their childhoods. Jessica McNulty's parents became involved with Xenos during this period. So my earliest memories of Xenos are running around at the warehouse. And my parents were pretty young when they got married um, and had kids. So a lot of their friends lived in the communal living houses. Uh, They call them ministry houses at Xenos. And so I grew up visiting those a lot uh, when my mom would go over there. Smoking was a really big part of the culture in Xenos. They even, during the large Sunday or Saturday night meetings, they had a smoking section at one point uh, during the teachings. And so most people smoked. and, And there's a picture of me in a ministry house telling the the, my mom's friends who lived there, that, that it was gross and throwing out an ashtray from there. So those are kind of my earliest memories of Xenos. The history page of the organization's current website refers to some adverse media coverage during this period. And I couldn't locate a copy of the original article, so I'm going to quote directly from the church's own website here. In 1984, the Columbus Dispatch ran a full two-page spread on Xenos citing hostile priests and pastors denouncing the group. Other voices joined in, including a group known as the Cult Awareness Network. 
Xenos elders got feedback from the network and from area pastors before launching an internal inventory that uncovered a number of incidents involving cult-like behaviour, end quote. According to the history page, the organisation then undertook extensive reforms, including more training of leaders, meetings looking at possible overuse of church discipline, and going over all of their materials to root out statements that could be misinterpreted as condoning the controlling of members. On an initial reading of this page, I was honestly surprised to see an organisation so openly grappling with a history of cult-like behaviour and admitting to issues. It's not a common occurrence in this line of research, but the stories I've read since, and there are many of them, lead me to believe that this reckoning did not result in a leadership that continued to work against exercising excessive control over its members. According to Reverend Rafael D. Martinez, Xenos lost around 1,700 members during this time of reputational crisis in the mid-1980s. Possibly seeing the need to further formalise some of his credentials, Dennis headed to the Ashland Seminary in Ohio and studied for an MA, which he achieved in 1986. In the early 1990s, Dennis and Gary realised that Xenos needed to change one of its core tenets – The organisation had always said that giving was not a part of its expectation of members, but their numbers could no longer fit into the warehouse, even with separate groups for CTs, and they needed more space. Dennis said on a podcast episode about the church's origins, quote, We had many home church leaders during that very time who didn't give anything and who were very, very upset when we began to call on home church leaders to have a record of giving to the church. The church's history webpage says, To the displeasure of some, leaders began taking collections and organised a pledge system. The first rollout involved pledges for the new building. They raised $3.5 million in pledges. By 1992, they had bought a property for $2.4 million, though they say it was worth a lot more. It took another five years to be able to use it due to zoning and construction issues, and more members and leaders were becoming dissatisfied with the wait considering if this was what God really wanted for them. This was a contributing factor to more people leaving the church, and even some challenges to its leadership. But eventually, in 1997, they opened the doors of what they call Main Campus. With another dip in membership, Xenos was sitting at around 2,000 followers when it came to refocus on multiplying in the mid-90s, and it found a fertile ground for its multiplication aims. Ohio State University and Columbus State Community College. Here's Jessica again. Xenos has a large emphasis on student ministry. More than half of their church is under 25. And they specifically say that that is their goal, to win people before they've made big life decisions in terms of uh, who they've married or what job they're going to go into, that they want to win people before they've made the big life decisions. And so part of that is the college ministry, which is where you see these communal living homes uh, that they call ministry houses. They have 100 houses in Columbus, Ohio, all on Ohio State campus area. They have tried to recreate that in other, they have multiple plants 
in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and uh, just different locations, uh, but they have been less successful in those areas. Jessica explained to me how the ministry houses fit in with the overall structure of Xenos. So you might have 30 people in a home church or 40, 50 people in a home church. Within that home church, that's both sexes, so male and female within the home church. And then you'll have cell groups below that, uh, which are then divided by sexes. So you'll have a female cell group and a male cell group within that home church. And then out of that, you have people that are living in the ministry house. So just because you're in the home church doesn't mean that you're in that ministry house. They consider the ministry house to be for more more committed people. So it's kind of something that they try to get people in, but they also kind of try to use it as almost like a status symbol that you want to be invited into, that, that you've proven your worth. And they have a 30-page document on ministry houses that Dennis McCallum and James Rochford, who are elders, wrote. And on the first page of that document, they say that being chosen for leadership or being chosen to live in a ministry house is the same thing as being recruited for a uh, sports team. And in terms of that, when you are thinking of a sports team, and what they're recruiting you, it's what do you bring to the table? And that's what they say in their document. So it's very much, there's a lot of emphasis on what are you going to do to produce for the church and to grow? And then the, and then the goal of every house is to, within two years or so, to be able to plant another church. So you grow your, your home church larger, which means you have more people living in the ministry house and then you should be able to. So you have a male house and a female house out of that home church. And, you know, a smaller group would be six or seven people. And then the goal is to get to like 15 to 16 people living in a house. And then at that point you have enough people that you could split again into two homes that would have six to eight people. And then they would, create a new home church and Xenos leadership decides who goes into what, what split of that group. In terms of the leadership structure, Dennis and Gary were the original senior elders with the board of elders sitting beneath them. Then on staff in the organization, there are home church coaches. Then there are also sphere leaders who oversee a certain area of home churches. To break this down a little further, as I understand it, home churches will get together at a particular location for the central teachings, or CTs, as there are too many people to fit into one CT. So different CTs will be held for different home church groupings that come together weekly. For any location that houses a CT, there is also a sphere leader, and this is who the corresponding group of home churches report to. Each home church has a leader or pair of leaders that reports to the sphere leader And under that is something they call a servant team leader. In order to be a home church leader, you have to be a servant team leader or working towards becoming a servant team leader. And they have certain qualifications they have to meet. They have a 38-page covenant they have to sign. And they have to complete two to three years of paid classes with Xenos that Xenos teaches 
you how to become a leader. Of course, none of those classes are trauma-informed or identifying abuse, but it's it's two or three years of their internal doctrine in order for them to be able to know how to teach Xenos doctrine. It was when she got to middle school that Jessica was most heavily involved with Xenos, and by then the numbers were sitting at around 5,000. Jessica told me what Dennis would say about the intense focus on multiplying. He repeatedly says that they are a replicating church, and that if you want to find a family church, go find one. There's plenty of them. They have a high emphasis on evangelism, so numbers are very important to them. You should be replicating, you should be discipling other people, and then they should be discipling other people. It's very similar to kind of an MLM. If a home church or a cell group isn't growing and and is ready to split within two years, they will fold that group, make people split up into other groups. Because to them, the number of, of people that you're winning and the amount of times that you can split and grow in numbers is a sign that God is with you and that you are growing. You may have a really healthy group and people are growing, you know, relationally and and learning new things about themselves and, and, and maturity. But if it isn't translating to numbers, then, then they'll fold a group. What's especially interesting about this is that in spite of the huge focus on replication and multiplication, The overall numbers of the church seem to have been fairly stagnant over quite a long period of time now. For as long as I've been aware of the numbers, so probably middle school or so, they have always claimed to have the same kind of numbers, right? Uh, So they've always said that they've had about 5,000 members. And what's interesting is that they have a state of, they call it the state of the church every year. And they'll say, oh, these are how many people that we won for Christ. But what they don't really see. So if they have 400 new people, you would think that the church grew by 400, but it they, they're losing just as many people every year. And they don't care about the people that they've lost. It's very, they, they run through people very quickly and burn people out very quickly. Former member Desiree Gaylord gave me a slightly different perspective on this aspect. She told me, they use the excommunication as a lesson to the group. And she said that their narrative will be that if a home group is not growing, there must be sin hiding somewhere in it. Desiree told me that they would usually look to find sexual sin within the group. She said, they find a poor sacrificial lamb sinner to blame and excommunicate. That then gives leaders an excuse to split up and end the group, sending remaining group members to an established group. Certainly, the annual reports that I've looked over talk about declining attendance over the last few years citing the pandemic and persecution as reasons behind this. But where there is mention of home churches folding, there is usually a focus on the new plants alongside. Desiree said, This makes the attendance numbers always look high and growing. Splitting has them always looking like there is growth and success. In addition to this, Desiree feels that Xenos really sees members as expendable, as a means to an end that only those who can really commit to the hardcore nature of the church will be worthy in the end times in any case. She recalls an interaction she had with Dennis in 1996, when she was early to an event at the campus. Quote, 
I remember him looking at the empty room and saying that during real persecution and tribulations, we would not believe how very few Christians will be left standing. He said that most of the room would be empty like this, only the few brothers and sisters will be left. Then we can get down to true fellowship and open up and really get down to the word. I asked Jessica if she could tell me a bit about the belief system in Xenos. From the outside, they have crafted an image that looks very much like any standard evangelical American church. So if you were to ask them what they believe, it would look very similar in a lot of ways. As you start digging deeper into the ethos and the culture, it's very authoritarian. They call themselves... Uh, publicly a high-commitment church. Those of us who have left would say it's a high-control church, but it is, uh, they, they've they tried to rebrand that as a high-commitment church. People that leave, they say, can't hack it. This I also found incredibly interesting. When I was mulling over the church's admissions to cult-like behaviours in its past, and the work they say they did to root out controlling aspects from leadership, I couldn't tee this up in my mind with the idea of a high-commitment church. And I think that could be where the leader's insistence that their organisation isn't harmful comes into conflict with its very nature. If something demands such high commitment of members that they are unable to live well-rounded lives with ample time for their own endeavours and pursuits, as well as healthy relationships with friends and family outside of the group, then the group is always going to harm people. It can't really be conducive to good mental health with those kinds of expectations on members' time. Publicly declaring yourself high commitment seems like publicly declaring yourself potentially damaging, but admitting to it doesn't make it more ethical. And we're taught from, at least I was, from a young age, how to defend that we weren't a cult. There was a popular place to go uh, and hang out on campus called The Dube. And when we would go, uh, people would write in permanent marker on the walls. and It was kind of a fun, cool place. But every time I went to the bathroom there, somebody would, they would paint over it like every week. Uh, but somebody would write Xenos as a cult really big. And I remember that being my first memory or my first interaction with, oh, people call us a cult. I didn't know that at that time. I, I was in middle school at that time, I think. And I came out and I asked my disciple, they're like, what's the deal with that? Uh, I saw that in there and we kind of laughed about it. And the party line is basically that people don't understand. They've never seen a church where people just love God so much. So they just think it's weird. They don't, they just don't get God's love in our church. And they've, they've just never seen people excited about God like we are. So they think it's weird. So they call us a cult. And then you were kind of taught how to argue that we weren't a cult. And that's not normal behavior. Jessica told me a bit about the expectations on the time of members and how it looks different as people become more involved. When you start, you are going to be, you know, loved bombed and they will seem very casual. They even have a policy about when you win someone into Xenos not to overload them with too much because you want that person to be able to reach out to their friends. And if they see that they're 
now doing six to seven days a week, it's going to be alarming to their friends. So you need to ease people in to the high commitment so that they can win their people. It's very strategic. But once you are committed, you're operating in some way six or seven days a week. So you have what they call their central teaching, which would look like anybody's traditional Sunday or Saturday weekend, larger teaching. And then you have your home church meetings. And then you have your cell group meetings. That's one night. And then you will have a night where you're taking classes usually. Because even if you have already taken all of the leadership classes, they always have quarterly classes that are like, they usually have like six classes every quarter, different classes. So you're usually taking some kind of class. And then you're required to disciple and be discipled. So you're meeting with someone who's discipling you, who's hypothetically, uh, if it's working correctly, someone who's technically spiritually more mature than you that can help guide you. And then in turn, you're supposed to also be mentoring or, or discipling other people. So you, you need time to meet with those people in both directions. And then there's prayer meetings that are usually weekly that you need to go to. And then if you are in a ministry house, you have even more demands because you have to have a, there's a house meeting every week that you have to attend. They are required to like throw events. They basically look like parties on campus trying to be a cool church. They, they really want to have that persona. So they'll have lots of beer and smoking and pizza and partying and try to ease people in. And a lot of people will get invited and not know that it's a church event, right? Because it's just at somebody's house on campus and there's beer and then they'll get surprised with a Bible study in the middle of that. So if you're living in a house, you're you're going to be required to help plan these kind of events. And then you're required, if, if you're at a servant team level or above, you're required to also have a ministry, be involved in some kind of ministry. Current senior pastor Conrad Hilario told NBC4 via a 2022 written response to a question around liquor bottles seen at ministry houses, quote, We discourage underage drinking and drunkenness but we do not monitor alcohol use at our members' private residences. A ministry house is similar to many thousands of off-campus houses where college students choose to live together. Ministries that members were expected to get involved with might include the college, high school ministry, middle school ministry, children's ministry, cafe ministry or adult ministry. And members might also be involved in one of the other areas of the church's operations, such as the schools they run, the study centre, or in hospitality, IT, or publishing. The Columbus Dispatch interviewed former member Kelly McKenna, and reporter Dana King wrote, quote, McKenna lived in ministry houses from 2005 to 2009 and missed several family reunions and other events because of her involvement with Xenos, said Barbara Moom, Kelly's mother. Even when McKenna was with relatives, she talked only about Xenos and spent a lot of time trying to persuade them to join the church, Moom said, end quote. As with so many of the groups we've looked at in this podcast, the intense expectations on people's time can be what means they don't have much left over for family and friends outside of the organisation. But Desiree Gaylord told me there was more to it than that. Upon getting heavily involved with Xenos, she says that members were expected first to accept Christ, 
and then second, to walk with God. Desiree shared that, quote, They use this walk as the most important thing. Their walk can be stumbled by outsiders who are being used by Satan to hinder their walk and harden their hearts to God, leading to discipline, expulsion and shunning. This is why members shut out their family and friends that are not recruitable. This was echoed by Kelly McKenna's experiences too. Dana King wrote for the Columbus Dispatch article, When her sister tried to persuade her to leave the group, Kelly McKenna said she thought it was a test of her commitment to God. She said the church characterises those not involved in Xenos as non-believers who harm members' journeys with God. Annual reports show the church's involvement in international outreach – and their website says they put an annual budget of $2.4 million towards this, though the 2022 annual report mentions $1.7 million. Quote, One of the main changes that led to success has been a shift from focusing mainly on sending Americans to equipping and funding Indigenous church planters and evangelists. Today, the church supports 260 workers in multiple unreached fields. It continues... Indigenous workers supported by the church have accounted for planting over 2,100 local churches with more than 21,000 new believers won into fellowship. That's from the website. Their reports cover work in Southeast Asia, Ecuador, Eastern Europe and West Africa. Unlike some of the groups we've looked at in the podcast, Xenos did always seem to have some genuine focus on work of benefit to those less fortunate. Jessica mentioned something to me called Mercy Medical Centre in Cambodia that does treat patients in need. But as you might expect, the services come with a certain focus. This is from the Church's 2022 annual report. MMC is based in Phnom Penh and serves individuals from every province in Cambodia. MMC provided medical care to over 19,000 patients this year, provided counselling sessions and witnessed over 490 people start a personal relationship with Christ. MMC works with over 140 referring partners to plant house churches throughout Cambodia. Here are some words from Dennis McCallum from his book, Members of One Another. Poor people need the love of Jesus, not just handouts. Handouts by themselves don't relieve poverty and may actually make matters worse if continued after emergencies have passed. Eric Smith was involved with Xenos for 15 years, eventually becoming a full-time elder. He wrote later, Since leaving Xenos, I have forgiven myself and have been able to reconcile with several people. I returned to my career in the world as a social worker. I began serving people in the community who had serious needs without an agenda on my part. These people re-taught me that everyone has worth and value. My life was enriched by simply knowing them, not by whether they could help me achieve my goals. In spite of their medical centre in Cambodia and drop-in clinics in Ohio, Jessica told me of another saying in Xenos. They are very clear over and over and over that they are an army, not a hospital. That's something that they say frequently. We are an army, not a hospital. And they believe that they are fighting against the world and Satan to save souls. They don't think that uh, being a hospital or, or kneeling with the wounded is a priority. An article by Emily Sugarman for the Daily Beast references Dennis's book Satan and His Kingdom. Quote, 
He claims Christians must act as soldiers, ready to endure extreme suffering, sacrifice their possessions, and follow their leader's orders. Soldiers in the spiritual war, McCallum writes, aren't free to show up only when they want to. On the battlefield, exertion may often be to the point of utter exhaustion. When Jessica told me about the discipling setup in Xenos, where everyone is expected to be mentored and to mentor others, it made me think of some of the other groups we've looked at for this podcast that adopted their similar structures from the shepherding movement. As you may recall, this tended to create a setup that is rife with harm. But Jessica told me that Xenos specifically said they rejected the shepherding movement and considered their discipling quite different to this. Yeah, so they specifically will say that the shepherding movement, it was harmful and that they're not like that. But they are very much like that. They will tell you who to date, who not to date. Now, they have publicly, in response to a lot of this criticism, said that they they don't do that. But it's not true. Internally in the culture, it is very almost emotionally incestuous, uh, where there are not good boundaries or, and you're not allowed to have boundaries or healthy boundaries. Now, what they'll tell you is that if you ask for advice or you ask my opinion, I'll give it to you, right? But I'm not telling you to do this. But if this person is in this structure, your spiritual leader, and you're not supposed to have autonomy and you're supposed to submit to your leadership. So they play these kind of word games to try to argue that they're not like that, but, but it is like that. Even if you have, if you, even if, if as a leader, you have the best intentions and you think that you're doing the right thing and you, you truly believe what you're saying is true and you're really trying to help this person, it doesn't matter because it's still very, the power dynamic is really messed up. Here's what Dennis McCallum said about discipling in Xenos in response to a write-up by Reverend Raphael D. Martinez that I referenced earlier. Quote, His claim that disciples have authority over their disciples is explicitly and strongly rejected in our training and practice, and we make it clear it will not be tolerated. Disciple-makers are facilitators and assistants. They do not have authority over a disciple. If one claimed he did have authority over disciples, that would be a clear breach of our rules, and it could result in discipline. The only power any disciple-maker has is the freedom to leave the discipling relationship if they feel it's appropriate. I think this ignores how it actually works in practice. Katie Reinecke, whose experiences we'll cover a little later, writes of the dynamic with her disciple-maker, quote, The expectation that I submit to her guidance was indistinguishable from my love for God himself. Jessica had a personal experience of discipling that I think is a good illustration of just one example of how it can impact someone's life. They do these retreats quarterly or so, and you go away for a weekend with your whole group, and you don't sleep, and it's exhausting, and there's three teachings a day, and it's a lot. And and so my group was going away for this retreat, and I was supposed to teach, and there were people that were coming that I had invited. They had been out a few times, but they weren't super involved yet. Anyway, so my grandma died and the funeral was going to be that weekend and it was out of town. And I had to make a decision. I was old enough 
my parents felt like I was old enough to make the decision on whether I wanted to go or stay. And I was, I was, I was around 15 probably. Yeah. It would have been around sophomore year. So, and I talked to my discipler who was the adult leader of my group and I say adult, but again, the structure in Xenos is so broken that she was only 20. She really didn't have any business being in charge of a bunch of teenagers. She didn't have the life experience. So I don't have any ill will towards her. I do think that that she and herself was a victim of the system. But she told me that, you know, basically your grandma's already gone. There's nothing, your, her soul is hopefully in heaven. And if you don't go, we're not going to have somebody teaching on this night. And these girls that we're trying to win for our group may not come because you're not going to be there. And so I chose to not go to the funeral and it wasn't a place where I could grieve because I needed to lead and I needed to teach and I needed to serve. And yeah, so there is just a, a lot of pressure. And my story there is not, is not an uncommon one. In the church's 2022 annual report, under a list of ministry teams is one called Navigating Your Grief, which offers seminars and support groups for people grieving the loss of a loved one, featuring biblical perspectives on grief and recovery topics. I asked Jessica if she could elaborate on the lack of sleep that she mentioned was a feature of the retreats. I think it's just because when you're around people 24-7 and you're expected to have fellowship with people that you would be disciplined or spoken to or admonished. If you said, Hey guys, I'm exhausted. I'm going to go to bed. You are expected to stay up and stay in fellowship. And, And that's true of, of their summer camps. That's true of their ministry houses. <laughs> You'll be admonished if you are going to bed uh, before midnight is usually the rule. So when you're trying to work and go to school, and that's a lot. There's a lot of pressure. And the, in their ministry house covenant, it specifically states in there that you are sacrificing your personal privacy, that you are sacrificing your sleep and they kind of demonize any kind of self-care there's a there's a lot of demonization of of any type of self-care those are things that you are required to do and then you're threatened to be kicked out if you don't do those things jessica shared with me that one of the key things xenos taught members is that autonomy is a sin they say it over and over. It's bred into the culture. You're to submit to the leadership, whether you agree or not. And if you don't submit to that, you will be removed. We'll hear some more about this teaching in part two. Jessica told me a story that demonstrates how the setup and expectations didn't really allow for disagreement with those in higher leadership positions in Xenos. Someone in my life uh, outside of the church had been physically abusive with me for a couple of years and it ranged from mild to severe. And I, I had to teach one night and I hadn't had time to calm down from it. I I had never talked about it with anybody. It was my own secret, Uh, but I was on the verge of a panic attack and I had to, uh, as soon as I walked in, people are talking to me 
and I am not hearing what they're saying because I am just trying to survive in that moment. And I knew I had to get up and teach and leave this meeting. And I was like, I need to calm myself down. And the only way I was going to get any privacy was to say that I needed to, I needed somebody to pray with me because I was nervous about my teaching or something like that. So that, so that other people wouldn't follow me so that I could have a moment. And, and so I asked my two closest friends to come out and I, I just started kind of hyperventilating that ugly sobbing cry. And I, I told them bits and pieces about what had happened that day, which was pretty mild in terms of my range, but they loved me and they were concerned. So they told, uh, my, uh, this was all without my knowledge at the time. They told my discipler who told the leader of the, all of the high school group, and then they took that all the way to the elders. And then they made some decisions that were just really harmful for me. And I was begging them to talk to me about it because they, they just really mishandled the situation and made it worse for me for a period of time. And I was told that I had to submit to that and, and that I, they, they wouldn't talk to me. I went to to the leaders and I had tears in my eyes. I was trying to keep it together. And I said, Hey, can I talk to you for five minutes, like alone? And she said, no, because I know what you're going to ask me. I know what we're going to talk about. And, and you are, you need to learn how to suffer well, Jessica. And when you are suffering, you need to serve. That is the only thing that you should be doing. And this went on for a couple of months where they were like, you, you need to agree publicly the what we did was right and I'm like I'm not I, I don't agree we can agree to disagree but I don't agree with how you handled that situation and I was I, I was a victim of the situation and I was a victim of you know I was I was a child who was hurting and I was I had all this pressure to teach and and go to all these meetings and I'll do all of these things on top of everything else that was happening and so they told my, they told some of my closest friends different things, but that they needed to shun me internally so that I would get in line. And so even like in the hallways at high school, they just stopped, they wouldn't even acknowledge me. And it was so painful. And they only started to actually intercede when there became conflict because my friends were trying to do what they were told by their leaders. Right. But I was so hurt that they would listen to that. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get over it. And they were like, so they started making me meet with different adult leaders, uh, sharing all of the detail, the dirty details of my life with people that I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with them knowing. And then they would spend hours just grilling me about how I needed to reconcile with these friends. I needed to move on because it was impacting our evangelism because we had brought out a hundred people in two years and this rift between us while we weren't sharing that rift with anybody else because we, we didn't want to, you know, whatever. It wasn't, we weren't, I wasn't trying to be divisive. I certainly wasn't talking about my situation. It was very private to me, but they said that I was being divisive and that I would, it, this went on for months with lots of different um, sit downs with me. But what struck me was that they only cared about the issue. They only started to intercede in the issue 
not when I was asking for help, not when I was asking to talk to them, but when it was impacting their, their level of growth. In the ministry houses, apart from the lack of privacy through sharing the space with so many other young people, there is even monitoring of members' personal communications. The lack of privacy that you're allowed to have, particularly if you were to live in a ministry house, you you need to have uh, accountability software on all of your electronic devices that your house leader has access to every single, not, not just things that they might deem potentially harmful, but everything that you search. They can see your call list and your texts. This is what a church representative said about the accountability software when questioned by Reverend Martinez. Quote, Some members voluntarily use Covenant Eyes or Accountable to You software on their devices because of unwanted pornography addiction. This is voluntary and they pick a friend, spouse, or roommate to be their partner. Leaders do not survey or monitor our members' internet usage. We take pornography seriously here because of the damage that it causes its user, but also in large part because of its objectification of women and how the sex industry enslaves and harms women. Keep this in mind for a story I'll touch on later. Reverend Martinez's reply to this included, quote, The usage of surveillance software is a reality there on a far greater scale than you are willing to admit. Once more, we have spoken with many former members recounting their discovery of their house leadership having deployed this software within their individual ISP routing within the house. This was not an individual choice resorted to by a struggling young man or woman in regards to their temptation, but it was imposed upon all." I wondered with the heavy involvement whether people's studies or day jobs suffered as a result of their involvement, or if there were limitations on the kinds of paid work that members were expected to do. Well, they have papers and policies and teachings on, they would classify it under materialism or making an idol. So that would be how they would defend this type of subject. But they will say that you shouldn't pursue something that is going to require a lot of your time because the most important thing is that you're growing the church. You're part of this army. We could be raptured at any time. The world, you could die tomorrow. And what kind of job you had or how much money you had is not going to matter. But what will matter is your eternal impact. Katie Reinecker wrote that there was an expectation that A spiritual person will give away as much money as possible to the church or other charitable organisations, keeping only enough money to live on. Of her own experiences, quote, I was often rebuked for focusing on school and was counselled to either allow my grades to suffer or change my major entirely in order to submit to God. Jessica's experience reflected this as well. Here's how it was framed in terms of her own schoolwork when she was around 15. I had gone to this elder and I said I was completely overwhelmed. I was so burnt out. You know, since middle school, I had been discipling people. I was teaching. I was on the leadership track. I was already taking classes. And at this point in my life, I was 15, I believe. And I was discipling three people. I was teaching somewhere at least once a week. And I was so overwhelmed. 
there just wasn't enough time in the day and I was so burnt out and I didn't know what to do. And I, you know, I have to go to school. I'm in, I'm in public school and then I need to do homework. And what I was told was that I just needed to pass the class. And so if, if it came down to teaching or preparing for a teaching or spending time with your disciple, that you should choose that over your schoolwork because grades could be an idol and that American culture, having a straight A student is an idol, but the real important thing is, is your ministry. We're going to wrap up part one of this episode here. Part two will be in your feed next week, or you can listen to it now if you're a Patreon supporter. In part two, we'll look at suicides and mental health in Xenos, purity culture and a teaching about women's ability to say no to sexual intercourse in marriage, the organisation's name change to Dwell, shunning of former members, and the church's responses to the stories of those who have suffered ongoing trauma from their experiences. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Let's Talk About Sects. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, which is linked in the show notes. And grab yourself a copy of Joe Gould's soundtrack album, Nobody Joins a Cult, which you can also stream on Spotify. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazel, with original music composed by Joe Gould. A huge thanks to Jessica McNulty and Desiree Gaylord for sharing their experiences with me, and to all of the other former members who shared their stories across forums and websites and media interviews. It's only through those who speak out that we can understand the dynamics of organisations like these. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 6 of the show. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables, and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com win to enter.
If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.